0: I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of the global ebook store, Rackton Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices. While they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of Rackton Kobo. My guest today is Dr. Julia Shaw. Dr. Shaw is a researcher and professor at University College London with a focus on criminal behavior. She's an expert witness, a startup founder, and author of The Memory Illusion. As with each of our guests, we ask her to tell us about books from three times in her life. The book that had the biggest influence on her childhood, the book that was most formative for her as a writer, and the books that were central to her most recent writing. Along the way, we'll be asking her about her own latest book, evil, the science behind humanity's dark side. Dr. Julia Shaw, welcome to Kobo. You start this book with an evil empathy exercise. Tell us why evil empathy is important.
1: So the exercise I do is to get you to think about the worst thing you've ever done. And that can be anything from cheating to stealing something to doing something maybe more violent. But assuming that everybody knew about this thing you did whatever it was and uh, defined you by it and called you names arising from it and I think that all of us would say that that can't possibly explain us in our complexity so that one word whatever it is uh, is insufficient to describe who you are as a human being and yet we do this to other people all the time and so we call people things like murder when they've made the decision to murder someone once or we call someone We call someone evil because they have done things that we disagree with. And it's a label that we we use almost exclusively for other people. And it's trying to simplify really complex issues in a disparaging way. And so we just need to be very careful that we don't use these labels to oversimplify the world around us.
0: You also called out something that I hadn't thought of but probably should have, which was someone in the world thinks you are evil right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that that was a moment of deep introspection for me, but almost certainly true.
1: Yeah. I mean, whether it's because you're not heteronormative, so you, let's say, don't have a heterosexual lifestyle, or because of how you eat, or because you're religious, or you're the wrong religion, or you're not religious, I mean, or you work in banking and you sort of have, quote, your, sort of your priorities not the right way around... I think there's certainly someone in the world who thinks that you are evil or certainly have a, a problematic lifestyle at the very least. And so I guess it's the idea that Nietzsche also put forward is that uh, evil is something that's created when we label something evil. It's an almost purely subjective construct that we treat as if it were objective, but really not.
0: So you come into the notion of evil as a researcher, as a clinician in criminal psychology, a specialization in false memory. You live, as you describe it, in the world of monster hunting. Uh, How did you find yourself here?
1: I found myself here. So I'm not a clinician, just to be clear. Okay. Um, I'm exclusively a scientist. uh, And I I work on cases as an expert, but I don't actually do therapy with anyone. Okay. And I find it fascinating to see how people discuss the concept of evil. So in many ways, the reason I wrote this book is because uh, I was teaching a class, a criminology class on, well, I called it evil, (laughs) and it was effectively trying to pick up all the, if you will, hot topics that students in third year really actually wanted to talk about. So these were students in criminology and psychology who had learned a lot about the theories and they'd learned about a lot around the the constructs that might lead to bad behavior, but they hadn't really talked about like serial killers. They hadn't talked about terrorists. They hadn't talked about the things that we'd cover in the news, effectively. And I wanted to give them a the space to do that and to critically evaluate it. And the conversations that came out of that and the discussions and the sort of crumbling of worldviews and rebuilding of them was so interesting that I wanted to bring that experience to a much wider audience. And I just think it's a really important thing that we as humans do and we reflect on on a regular basis.
0: You kick the whole book off with what may be the most illuminating question in modern ethics, would you kill baby Hitler? and that sounds like the perfect way to kick off a seminar you know, filled with students who are interested in grappling with these issues. What does that question shine a light on when talking about evil?
1: I think it shines a light on how we think about whether people are born evil. Or, again, I feel like whenever I use the word evil, I use an inverted commas because I think we should really stop using the label because it's practically meaningless. Um, or at the very least, not scientific and not interesting and, and sort of, yeah casts a veil over the nuances that are much more interesting. But with the baby Hitler question, which seems to come up a few times a year, some famous person says it, or it trends on Twitter, or something happens.
0: I've obviously been missing parts of Twitter. The the baby Hitler talking part of Twitter. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, it's come up quite recently uh, as a hugely controversial statement in a hugely controversial context. But what I think it says is that if you say, yes, I would go back in time and kill baby Hitler, then what you're really saying is I think people are born with the brain of this thing we call evil. And if you say no, then you say probably it's either nurture or it's a mixture or it's more complicated than that. So, And, and I think that our brains tend towards simple answers, and we need to be very careful not to get lured into this idea that, ooh, we can point, pinpoint one thing, like psychopathy, and point at that and say, ooh, that's where evil is, because that's just never how it works.
0: And through the rest of the book, you take this deep dive into each of the behaviors that we associate with inverted quotes evil um, sadism, murder, pedophilia war crimes and in each you're trying to get past that generalization that label to the data whether it's functional MRIs or brain activities or behavioral experiments or research surveys but there were some surprising detours along the way. What is cute aggression?
1: (laughs) I think it's absolutely crucial when you talk about things we label evil that you don't just spend your whole time in the darkness. And by that I mean, I mean, this book gets pretty dark. I mean, it is from one controversial taboo topic to another. And in between, I think you need to come up for air. And cute aggression is one of those breathers <laughs> that helps you ease into constructs, ease into how we think about things, and uh, take a bit of a break. Uh, cute aggression is when you. Uh, see something like an animal, like a puppy, and it's so cute. You oh, just want to, I just want to squeeze it, uh, and you sort of get overwhelmed with this feeling of effectively aggression. Uh, and some people have this with babies. You want to pinch your cheeks really hard. You want to squeeze them really it's hard. It's the
0: I could just eat you up it's feeling.
1: Exactly, exactly. Uh, and and people get weirded out by the fact that they have this and sort of like you can. Have, I have it towards my partner. Like I want to just squeeze. it just <laughs> And, and it's weird, and I, d- I didn't understand it until recently, and I found out that it turns out our brains effectively have these what are called dimorphous displays of emotion. And what's happening is that because we feel so much of one emotion, in this case cuteness or positivity, our brain shoots at the opposite to make sure that our brain doesn't short circuit. And so it's the same reason why we laugh at a funeral, why we cry at a wedding, those are all sort of opposites, right? and it's effectively the brain trying to protect itself from too much of any one thing.
0: And so is it is it a balancing? Is it an attempt to create a, like a, a countervailing reaction?
1: Yeah, it's it's a it's a balancing of the brain probably mm-hmm. as far as we understand. It's a perfectly normal thing to feel as well. Not to say that everybody feels it, but a lot of people do. And you shouldn't be worried about it. And I think this is where the evil certainly tries to go into things that you know, what should I be worried about? What thought patterns are bad? And in this case, this is a pseudo-aggressive thought pattern. You do not need to be worried. But if we then start looking at what aggression actually is, then we start getting into, you know, from passive aggression via real aggression, sort of more man- mm-hmm. physically manifest man- aggression, all the way up to murder and serial killers, there is a pathway in there that I think we underestimate. And I think is really important to to visit and to see.
0: And. As you lay out that progression, active to indirect to passive, you can certainly see different parts of yourself in that. Aggression can be helpful at work. Anyone in a relationship of any kind can look at your checklist for passive aggression and see themselves in it pretty clearly. But there is a difference between those behaviors and someone who, as you say, spreads vicious lies or assaults people on street corners. Can you talk a bit about the dark tetrad and what that means?
1: The Dark Tetrad is a cluster of personality traits that are associated with harm, effectively, with, with your ability as a human being to commit harm or to, to do harmful things to others. And it includes, uh, well actually the Dark Tetra has been expanded to be the Dark, uh, sorry, the Dark Triad was expanded to the Dark Tetrad. So it started as the Dark Triad and now as the Dark Tetrad. But effectively it's psychopathy, narcissism, machiavellianism and sadism. and on all of these it's not that you need a diagnosis of uh, psychopathy and uh, narcissism for example to be high on, to, to to fall into this cluster it's actually that subclinical values we call them so when you don't quite meet a diagnosis for any of these but you're high on all four then you are seen as a high risk person for uh, dehumanizing others because you're often lacking in empathy and your motivations are a bit distorted and you're more likely to do harm now that doesn't excuse harm So just because you're high on the dark tetrad doesn't mean that you are allowed to do bad things. It's still on you, you're still fully responsible, and it's still uh, problematic. But it it can help us to contextualize why some people are more prone to doing Mm -hmm. harm than others.
0: Even at the end of that description, you state that it seems there is no such thing as an evil brain, an evil personality, or an evil trait, that when you look at them all close up, they're all messy parts of of humanity when you're lecturing about this when you're talking to people about this is that where hands shoot up is that a place where people get stuck
1: that it's messy
0: well that it, that the absolutes that they're reaching for it's like hey you've just given me four great um, kind of Personality attributes and values that I should be able to score someone on. Surely, if those numbers cross, then someone's evil, right? And
1: oh, we love we, we love that kind of easy explanation. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we we if you look at uh, some other uh, writing on evil or evil related constructs, uh, there is often this this tendency to sort of point at one thing and be like, oh, it's low empathy. Oh, it's the psychopath. Uh, that's who. That's who's evil. Those are the monsters in our modern society. And it's we, we love talking about psychopaths. I mean, they are modern day. I mean, that is what they are. And I think they have as much fictional uh, misinformation that's spread around what psychopathy actually is, as any fictional, actually fictional creature. Um, And so we need to deconstruct that and think more critically about it, not to say, sort of, ooh, look, that's where, that's where the wrongdoers are.
0: In talking about murder, you begin with murder fantasies. We all have them. Yours happen in airports. Mine involve inner city driving. But this quote of yours stood out for me. If your murder fantasies were deeper and you had less to lose, you might act on them too. Maybe the only difference between you and a serial killer is a fully functioning prefrontal cortex, enabling you to inhibit behaviors when other cannot. others cannot. Killing is one of the strongest social prohibitions we have. Am I really just a poorly functioning prefrontal cortex away from a killing rage?
1: Again, not quite that simple, but it does show the sort of... I mean, effectively, it highlights the importance for seeing the context of our behavior. And it's really easy when things are good in our lives, when, you know, we're safe, when we're fed, when uh, we don't feel threatened to say, you know, to take the moral, to get on our moral high horses and say, oh, I would never, I would never (laughs) do terrible things. And that's, that's just that's really easy. And instead, I think we need to assume that we're all capable of harm. And if you look at war, if you look at some of the worst atrocities that humans have, have been responsible for, including things like genocide, I mean, those constructs fall apart really quickly, given the right circumstances. And we need to be on high alert at all times that our moral compass can really go askew. So I think with with that, it's more sort of saying... You know, maybe if situations were a bit worse, maybe if you had a bit more to drink, maybe if you didn't engage your decision making at the right time, you would also be capable of murder. And I think, I think, yeah, I think we're all capable of murder and we need to not just look at sort of documentaries and point at people and go, ooh, that's fascinating because that other person had such a, for example, bad childhood. That must be the reason why people murder. No, no, introspect. Think about how you could be capable of these things as well.
0: Murder, we understand as a part of a discussion of evil, but let's talk about creepiness.
1: Mm-hmm. How
0: does creepiness fit in to kind of the taxonomy of evil?
1: Creepiness is so firmly associated with evil that, I mean, I feel, feel like if you look at, if you watch a movie, you can pretty much without even having knowing anything about the characters, pick out which one's going to be the villain most of the time. So there's this sort of look that they have, there's maybe something in their eyes, there's maybe, and this is especially more historic characterizations of creepiness, maybe there's a physical abnormality, something that defines them in some way, uh, and makes them look not like the average individual. And I think that with creepiness we need to be very careful that we're not letting our creepiness radars lead us astray. Because we have weird associations, so until recently, there there wasn't any research on creepiness uh, and to what people actually mean when they say that. And so, when you look at the characteristics that have emerged from this new body of research, people say things like, you know, long fingers, long fingers are creepy. What? Uh, I mean, not not showering. That you know, keeping being too close physically, uh, relentlessly steering the conversation towards one topic. I mean some social some physical some some other attributes um but what we're trying what effectively is happening is that we're making a snap decision as to whether we can trust somebody or not and more often than not uh, or about half the time based on research that is just we're about as good as tossing a coin
0: and that really surprised me that we do in fact have almost no innate ability to detect whether someone is capable of a bad act, likely to commit one, like where you might as well be tossing coins.
1: I mean, there was a study that asked people to rate uh, the trustworthiness of various faces and the faces were either pictures of Nobel laureates uh, or pictures of America's most wanted felons and people couldn't tell the difference. And, I mean, that speaks volumes about other things that are problematic with our society that we don't know what Nobel laureates or who Nobel laureates are. But it also just suggests that we're really, really bad at relying on this creepiness radar, and we need to be very careful that we don't dehumanize people just because of the way they look and because of assumptions we make about them.
0: You take a kind of sidebar from acts that are thought of as evil to talk about technology is a medium in which evil happens. Mm -hmm. You have your own ambiguous relationship with technology. There's a common perception that technology is neither good nor bad, but can be used either way. Why include it in a book about evil?
1: I think it's absolutely critical that we start talking more about cybercrime and we have it as a fundamental part of our discussions around wrongdoing and harm and criminality. And I think it's something, and I address this in the book, um, I continue to be shocked. Like, like picture me as the like, surprise emoji with the like, the scream emoji going, Ah! (laughs) Every time somebody says to me that they don't have a cybercrime, I mean, lecture, ideally they should have a track in their criminology or psychology department. Like, This should be standard. This is not something that we should reserve for, quote, the nerds over in engineering or computer science. This is something that affects us on such a fundamental level every single day. And most crimes now are committed online. But omitting it from a a book on evil, I think, would be really problematic because we need to bring technology into this conversation.
0: So if you were designing a new criminology curriculum from scratch that Mm. included this field in it, what are some of the hot-button topics you would hope that researchers would be diving heavily into that they're not yet today?
1: I mean there are some researchers that are diving into these issues and there is a, there's actually a whole area called crime science which is trying to take an interdisciplinary approach to dealing with crime and that includes incorporating technology. There is also I mean there is this field of study of cybercrime it's just almost never in criminology departments mm-hmm. uh, and that's what surprises me it's usually in computer science or
0: it's or, how to do it yeah. not why does it get done and how
1: do we build a firewall to stop it rather than exactly why does it happen and and again it's not to sort of undervalue the, the police as well often have a cyber crime task force or something similar but that is also usually so small mm-hmm. compared to their other units uh, when it should really be center stage so i think that we the biggest question is, is well i mean the, the question that really everyone's interested in is at what point is sort of ai evil I think that's the sort of dystopian in all of us who like, Ooh, we want to know, when is it going to take over? Um, but the more realistic question is how do we use it to, do, to commit harm and why? And do existing criminological and psychological theories apply to understanding why people commit crime online? Um, or is this a new form of crime?
0: And in your view, is it a new form of crime? Are we building new kinds of harm as the result of technology or are these repackaging of existing harms in new media, <laughs> or the,
1: the the quote that's used is this old wine in new bottles i feel like that quote itself dates the person who said it um
0: <laughs> I, I i would have to get the patches on my uh, on my tweed jacket to be able to deliver that exactly. one i think
1: um i, I feel like that in and of itself might be indicative of the problem. but we
0: would probably be in a way better room there would be like there would Mine be there, there would be sort of hardcover river. books all around, and there would be you know, <laughs> you know, leather covered chairs. It'd be a it'd be a lovely place. It would place. smell wonderful. It would smell wonderful.
1: Uh, yeah, but the I mean, there are undoubtedly new types of crime that are emerging. But a lot of what we do online is a just a magnified version or a, a non physical version of what we do offline. So I mean, what I mean, theft is a good example. I mean, stealing financial resources from people is. Something you do both in person and you do online. Um, th- bullying, I mean, cyberbullying, trolls, that kind of harassment online also happens offline. But there we know that it's easier to do it online. Partly because uh, you might, might think you can't get caught, sort of the, the anonymity aspect of it. Partly because you have less of a filter because you're not sitting in front of someone's face and you don't have the, res- you know the repercussions of that Mm -hmm. and partly because it's really easy to dehumanize people and have flat experience and just forget that there are people there at all and so you act in ways that you just wouldn't offline and that we know that that's something the internet facilitates that it facilitates that kind of bad behavior and that we need to have yeah take precautions in how we deal with that
0: towards the end of the book you explore the ideas of compliance and I think what could best be described as the evil of following orders. If murder and aggression tend to be intimate or at least one-to-one person-to-person acts, this is where we find the most sweeping acts of genocide, mass rape, ethnic cleansing. But even here, where we find Nazis and torturers and mass murderers, you have trouble finding evil as a concept. Instead, you find a set of individual behaviors and pathologies. And that must be an area where people get stuck. That must be one of the places that you have to push through in your disassembly of the idea of evil. Can you talk a bit about that?
1: I mean, that's why it's at the end of the book, is that I tried certainly to build up the narrative and the deconstruction of evil in such a way that i felt like let's start with things that we're all familiar with let's start with sort of you know passive aggression in your relationships and wanting to squeeze cute animals uh, and then move slowly slowly via you know sexual fetishes move slowly via uh, business structures and money and finally end up at uh, if you will the ultimate evil which is a, in my opinion at least uh, probably genocide and which seems on the surface impossible to understand. But when you see who was involved, which is huge amounts of populations, suddenly feels a lot more relatable because these are pretty normal people. And so it's more a question of how they, how you can get swept up in a system that so vastly dehumanizes and and destroys uh, other individuals. So I, I mean, I don't know that it's it, it's not that it gets pushed back. I mean, I'm not saying anything that I don't think has been, hasn't has been said before. I, I mean, I said Hannah Arendt's work, I said Phil Zimbardo's work, Stanley Milgram, I mean, they're all in that chapter. It's almost sort of like the... the,
0: the it's the greatest hits of evil. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Especially <laughs> that one, because that is what a lot of people focused on, because it is sort of the ultimate act. And I think we're effectively... we all have variations of the same basic take-home message, which is that we're all capable of this. We need to be very careful that we don't allow systems to flourish that uh, allow us to outsource our morality. We need to, we are ultimately always responsible for the actions we engage in, but we don't, again, need to try not to overestimate yourself and assume that given a totalitarian regime, you know, you would, you would stand up against authority. You don't know that. But I think it's important to, if you are ever in that situation, not to assume that, well, it's not really my fault. I'm just following orders. That is never going to be an excuse that is, I think, morally acceptable.
0: You advocate for that personal vigilance on one side and then on the other, throughout the book, a theme that returns, whether we're talking about serial killers, narcissists or pedophiles, is the need to avoid dehumanization. Um, of thinking of people committing these acts as other, as less human. Can you explain why that's so important in this book and maybe in your work in general?
1: So writing this book was simultaneously one of the hardest things I've ever done and one of the most fun things I've ever done because it really was a sweeping exploration of what I consider to be some of the most important topics in the world right now. And possibly, I mean, some of them, I mean, the, the question of what is evil and, you know, how do we talk about it has been something that has fascinated humans for as far back as we can identify, I think. But it was, I think, the the biggest thing that we need to take out of it is to whatever you see as the worst in society, and this was why it was tough to write for me as well. And for me, it's slavery. For me, it's um, child sexual abuse. For me, like, there are certain topics that are just, like, I had to step away from, I needed to come back to, because it's really hard to see the humanity in certain acts and in certain people and just because something's difficult that doesn't mean we shouldn't try and so I would hate to not try and find the humanity in everyone, that's what I tried to do and I think we absolutely need to all be doing that all the time and just don't use the word evil, it's lazy uh, instead try to figure out why people actually do these things because otherwise we're never going to be able to print that, that behavior from happening um, So don't dehumanize, and even even the worst zero killers are, are, are people who commit terrible, terrible things, I think, instead describe what it is about that behavior that you find so terrible, and again, how we can tackle it.
0: Professor Zimbardo, who's the architect of the, the famous or maybe infamous Stanford Prison Experiment, is now working on how to create the conditions for heroism rather than... Cruelty and oppression, which was a, a moment of great hopefulness for me, as uh, as we were getting towards the uh, the end of this book. Does thinking about evil give us better tools for understanding what it means to be good or to be good in society?
1: Yes. So I think we it's it's almost a prerequisite. I think really is to think about why we do bad things. It also helps us understand why we do good things. But it, in in some ways, we need to understand the the bad in order to contextualize the good, and for Heroism. I mean, there's different ways in which we can deviate from the norm. One is to commit crime, another is to deviate and be extra helpful to the world and and to have a really net positive effect. And that's what Zimbardo, and I think that's what a lot of people who research evil ultimately come out with is this. Is probably uh, is this hopefulness of no, the world isn't a terrible place. This is just part of the human experience. We really need to talk about it, but this doesn't lead us to a place of despair. Um, it just leads us to a place where we need to tackle these issues. And, uh, and for his message, it's we need to think about how we can be heroes. And in doing thought experiments around moral dilemmas, around evil, uh, it can actually lead us to think through how we would react positively to those situations, which prepares us to better deal with the situations if they actually arise.
0: And that notion of essentially training yourself and preparing yourself to be good, exactly. that it doesn't happen spontaneously, you have to put yourself in places over and over again where that can happen.
1: Exactly, exactly. Zimbardo also reviewed the book.
0: Did he? He did. What did he say?
1: He called it a masterpiece.
0: Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: mean, I don't know that it is, but when I got the review back from Zimbardo, I was like, oh, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> the, the the sort of leading expert on evil. And he is, in fact, still alive. Uh <laughs> <laughs> if that's a question. He, he's, uh, he is. He's now older, but he is. Uh, he reviewed it, and I was so so excited.
0: Did you send back and ask for like a signed "I Survived the Stanford Prison Experiment" T-shirt, or, or because you know, that would show you're really a fan. Did you ever think, growing up, that you would spend your time working on serial killers and criminal psychology?
1: Probably from the moment I chose criminal psychology as my field of study, I probably did, which was an undergrad. Um, Before then, I don't think I would have put it past myself, like as a child. I've always liked talking about things that other people don't like talking about and things that I consider really important topics. Um, But the other thing I quite like is making people feel uncomfortable. (laughs) I really like watching people squirm when we're talking about difficult issues. Um, And sort of, again, that sort of... Uh, sort of reflection that comes with that. Sort mm-hmm. of how do I actually feel about this? And I find that really fun to engage with. Um, but I, I don't know that I would have, as a little girl, known that I was going to be into this.
0: What did you want to do when you were like 9, 10, 11? What was the chosen career then?
1: Probably veterinarian.
0: <laughs> I <laughs> don't remember. I don't
1: remember. Uh, I did have this uh, brilliant picture uh, that I'd apparently drawn when I was like 6 of uh, my mom. Uh, and uh, apparently I was... Uh, my future was birthing enough children to to have my own football team like soccer team that was my goal as a six-year-old thanks society wow okay. <laughs> teaching little girls that that's the greatest contribution there you football. go but i did want to be like the manager of my own fo- soccer team effectively so uh,
0: you're basically building a dynasty is what <laughs> yeah. you're doing
1: i uh, even drew them as like from like little babies up to
0: well they're not all the same age
1: <laughs> exactly i recognize that at least. But I... I've, I've flourished as my goals <laughs> And I've
0: grown in my feminism cool. since then. Glad to see. Tell me about the, uh, the most formative books from your childhood. Which were, which were the ones that you felt really turned your head when you were young? What did I tell you earlier? <laughs> Ahem. What you wrote. I read a tremendous number of books as a kid. Still do! Exclamation mark. But some that come to mind are Sophie's World, mm-hmm. The Goosebumps Series, and The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. How would you respond?
1: <laughs> Thank you for that prompt. <laughs> I that must have been the email I sent you. Yeah, it sounds right. Yep. I had to I really had to think about this because I I don't have a an obvious book that comes to mind, which is why I needed the prompt. I I read so much as a child. I mean I read everything I got my hands on and I actually had this whole system with my parents and this may have may have helped, I don't know, where they would give me uh <laughs> <laughs> little toys every time I finished a book I would get a pocket puppy it's like a tiny like uh, effectively a, a tiny dog um, and every time I fi- but I'd also have to write a synthesis of that book to get it so I'd have to like do a little review of the book to make sure that I'd actually read it
0: you had to work hard for a pocket puppy
1: <laughs> uh, I had a but I had a lot of them in the end <laughs> so uh, yeah pocket puppies that was my, my entry do
0: too. you still have the reviews
1: I don't It don't. (laughs) But that was, uh, I don't know if that helped to facilitate love reading or if I would have had it anyway, but I definitely accumulated a lot of puppies. Um, In the process, things that I particularly liked reading were, I I love the Goosebumps series, so in terms of thinking about things that scare us, I think I've never shied away from that topic. Uh, As an adult, I also really like the horror genre because I think it explores our fears and visualizes things that we're all afraid of in various ways, and I think that's really fascinating. With The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, that was my introduction to science fiction, which I think for a lot of people probably is. And I love science fiction. Absolutely love science fiction, getting lost in worlds and futures and timelines and time travel and and thinking about what the world could be, not just what it is. Um, And then yeah, Sophie's World, that was my introduction to philosophy because it's it's a book about a little girl who has to deal with ethical dilemmas and goes into a world of, of that.
0: You spend a lot of your time as a researcher, as an expert witness, as a lecturer. What created the impetus to carve out time to write a book, now two books? Um, when do you decide, yes, this needs to get packaged up and put between covers?
1: So the first book, The Memory Illusion, I wrote partly because I somebody asked if I wanted to and I sort of thought, well that sounds fun. <laughs> so I accidentally fell into my first book. I mean, I, I genuinely had, I, I had been interviewed about my research on false memories, which, where I um, implanted false memories of committing crime in what ended up being a sort of viral study and um, had a lot more impact than I was expecting it to. And I got interviewed in uh, The Evening Standard, which is like a free newspaper, and a literary agent read this. It was like on page like 105. I mean, it was not a prominent piece. And she read it and she said, do you want to go for coffee? And uh, th- that from that coffee, she's like, you should write a book about this. I was like, no, me. I just, I just finished my PhD. But then I thought, why not? We don't have enough female authors. We don't have enough young voices in this conversation. And there, at that time, wasn't a, a popular science book on false memories especially not going beyond what's called the satanic panic so which is about um historic child sexual abuse cases so mm-hmm. a very specific application of questions around memory and therapy and abuses of, of that um and so that was the the first one so I, I really thought the world needed to know about what we were doing in science and that's why we wrote the first one with evil it's it goes even further is that i just i I, have, I write books that i think the world will benefit from that i think the world i mean say the world needs i don't know if that's right but I, I think it's going to make the world a better place somehow to, think people's, to change people's opinions and get them to question certain things. And I think that's what drove me to evil and it's fascinating. It's really fun to work on these books.
0: <laughs> and were there things that you took from the experience of writing the first one that have been reflected in the second one, either in terms of process or how you approach the topic? Is, it, you know, is this something that you're sort of developing as you go along?
1: You're always growing as a writer, or I certainly am, and I, I certainly hope that I am as well. So, you know, come book four, I hope that I'm quite a different writer than I am now. But I think the the main lessons, sort of learnings from the first book, one of them is nobody really knows what they're doing, and so it's not just you. I think I assumed that uh, people around me would somehow have magical answers to what the right book would look like, like how to write. This correctly as if that was like a tick box and you could be this is a correct book. Turns out that's not a thing, and so uh, in my second book, I definitely became more uh, sure of what I thought I wanted, what I wanted to say, and how I wanted to say it. And I overleft less to the editor, if you will. Not to say that I don't think editing is important; it is. But I think you do grow in confidence, and I think that's a good thing. Um, and yeah, just I guess especially for emerging authors. Like, nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> it's not just you. We're all just pretending to be adults. Um, and so, yeah, listen to advice, but also listen to your own gut you feeling in many, many instances.
0: What were the books that were central to the writing of this current book?
1: So, uh, as you have on your list that I've sent you, <laughs>
0: <laughs> now you're revealing the whole secret process.
1: <laughs> Again, we're all just pretending to be adults. <laughs> I mean one that's, re- that's quoted quite often in the book is Nietzsche, Beyond Good and Evil um, I actually quote Nietzsche in various ways and I, I I found so he effectively breaks down this whole construct of uh, that there's no such thing as objective evil, there's only subjective interpretations of evil, he specifically comes out at critiquing religion, so that's his big angle um, Beyond Good and Evil is a weird read for a female author in particular, because the first half, I was effect- effectively like, yeah, you're my soulmate, you know, I'm totally going along, yes, this is pretty much exactly how I feel. get to the second half of the book, and it's deeply sexist, even for the time.
0: And then you immediately flip to asshole. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> totally.
1: And it, it, it is a conflicting situation to find yourself in where you're like, I really like this part of what he does, but I probably, I mean, he wouldn't have, he would probably disagree with the fact that I even write books. Because he thinks that women belong, effectively, in the kitchen and are mentally inferior.
0: So, Mm -hmm. not just books, but probably whole being scientist, researcher, professional. Yeah,
1: probably wouldn't have gone on with lots of men at that time, though.
0: But if you'd stuck with the soccer team plan, (laughs) I think you would have been totally, (laughs) totally down totally down with that.
1: Uh, But nonetheless, he had a huge impact, as did a number of other philosophers, but him in particular. I mean the classic, Hannah Arendt's Eichmann in Jerusalem, uh, is who coined the term the banality of evil and sort of deconstructing who is capable of great harm and sort of effectively saying that, you know what, it probably could be all of us and it's not these monsters who we picture in movies and books, it's you and I and we need to be much more conscious of that. Uh, And then Daniel Ariely. Dan Ariely was a huge influence on me as a scientist because it sort of showed that you can do science and you can communicate it to the public. And he was, I think, my first platonic uh, sort of popular science love. Where the honest truth about dishonesty showed that, you know, how everyone is capable of being dishonest and we lie all the time, and why that might be the case, and using behavioral economics to debunk it. Um, I think that to me showed that you can have this life outside of academia and and really inspire change in people and the way they think. And I think that's not an option that a lot of academics are told they have. And so you need role models for that.
0: And it certainly seems to be one that you have taken up yourself.
1: Oh, thanks.
0: Thank you so much for spending time with us today.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: That's it for this episode of Kobo in Conversation, a podcast about books and the authors who write them. To discover the books you just heard about, or to follow us, please visit www.kobo.com conversation. This podcast is produced at the Kobo Audiobook Studios here in Liberty Village in Toronto, Ontario.